shall we pray before we read? Dear God, we just want to thank you for your word, which is, uh, which is a guide unto us and a guide unto our pathway uh, we like. We just pray that your spirit will guide us, um, even as I read from the passage and as um, Robert uh, preaches on it. We, we thank you and we praise you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, it's terrific to be here this morning, and I am delighted to be able to share um, this work. So it'd be good to have that passage open as we begin. Now, I want to ask a question to start with about how you're feeling at the moment. Now, I confess I'm feeling tired and weary. Now, I'm a highly mo motivated, organized, and hard worker, but as lockdown has dragged on and on, and we're stuck at home for longer and longer with seemingly no prospect of ever leaving Melbourne, I'm feeling more weary, more easily distracted, and work feels more like a slog. Indeed, I know many in Melbourne, particularly those with young children who are feeling the same, tired, demotivated, less focused, and zoomed out. Uh, the feelings were summarized in a recent tweet where someone outlined what they described as a quarantine haiku, which is a form of Japanese poetry. It says, I have done nothing, and yet I'm always tired, unless in my bed. Now I realize that the recent changes under the restrictions last week will probably help, but after a long, long lockdown, many are feeling tired and frustrated. So then how do we combat these feelings of tiredness, frustration, and overwhelm? Well, unfortunately, our culture struggles to offer lasting solutions. Money's thrown at initiatives, inspirations offered, motivation provided, but ultimately, I think the wisdom and solutions offered by our world fails. Indeed, the true and lasting solution to these challenges is actually found in the Bible. And the life-changing answer was rediscovered in the Reformation around 500 years ago, which we remember today. Now, Reformation Day, as Alan said before, is on the 31st of October. Yet it's not really a day which involves streamers, presents, or Reformation Day parties. Other religious celebrations and festivals in the world involve perhaps more elaborate and dramatic celebrations, for example, like the Hindu Thaipusam Festival, where devotees often pierce their skin, tongue, or cheeks with small spears or hooks, 
or the Tinku festival in Bolivia, where people spit blood to ensure a good harvest from the goddess Pachamama, or the Made Snada festival in India, which devotees roll over in leftovers of food. By comparison, Reformation Day celebrations are a bit more muted if it gets remembered at all. Maybe you get a special sermon for it if you're lucky. Well, you're lucky this Sunday because we're remembering the Reformation. And when we're reminded of what, we, what was rediscovered in the Reformation, then perhaps it might be worth a little bit more passion and fanfare. This is because one of the central ideas rediscovered in the, is, the, is the solution to our weariness, tiredness, and frustration. Yet more significantly, it's the solution to even bigger problems in life. The problem of sinful humans being accepted by a holy and perfect God. By contrast to the solutions offered by religion and our society, the radical idea of the heart of the Reformation will bring us peace, rest, and satisfaction. The radical idea understood afresh by Martin Luther was to do with a small but misunderstood word, grace. Now, the most beautiful and clearest explanation of Christian grace is found in Ephesians chapter 2. So today, as we reflect on this passage, we'll unpack the offerings of our culture and the offerings of religion to our tiredness, weakness, and sinfulness, and then we'll uh, explore why they fail. We'll see how Martin Luther's discovery of true biblical grace sets us free, and then we'll see the difference that true grace makes, not just to feeling tired and overwhelmed, but in every arena of our lives. So today, we'll be reminded afresh of just how amazing grace is. So let's start with Ephesians 2. And as we start to unpack why the offerings of our culture and of religion to our weaknesses and tiredness fail. Now, Paul starts here in verses 1 to 3 with a bleak summary of the human condition. He describes the way in which the Ephesians used to live. And it's not a pretty sight. It's transgressions, sin, desires of the flesh, which ultimately result in death and wrath. Now, this isn't to say that people are incapable of doing good things or a virtuous living, but the human condition is not a pretty sight. And even non-believers recognize this. The, the famed atheist, the late uh, Christopher Hitchens, was once asked the question, is man intrinsically good or bad? And he responded emphatically, man is unquestionably evil. You only have to be on Twitter for five minutes to see that. Now, when you go and type in, why is Twitter dot, dot, dot um, in Google, what do you think the top suggested answer from Google is? What do you think that when you say, why, why is, when it tries to complete the sentence, what do you think it says? Well, before it says, why is Twitter so popular, not working, or so slow on Safari, the top answer that Google gives you, and that obviously people are looking for, is why is Twitter so toxic? Twitter is a toxic place. Indeed, one person said, I quit Twitter in January 2019 when I realized that it was a platform that was increasingly showing the level of depravity and sometimes perverseness of the human mind. The darkness and sometimes inhumanity of some tweets affected me in a, in a visceral way. The problem with Twitter is not technology. The problem is not people being in a bad headspace. The problem is human nature. Twitter represents the very worst of humanity. Just as verse 3 says, our sinful humanity gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And the outcome of this is verse 1, being dead in transgressions and sins. And then verse 3, deserving of wrath. This is the human condition. 
Because of the way humans live apart from God, humans are dead people walking, facing wrath. So what can be done about the human condition? How do we not live enslaved to these desires and thoughts, ultimately leading, leading to destruction? Well, the solution offered by religion to the moral failures and weaknesses of the human condition is the same as the solution offered by our world to our tiredness problems. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that being tired is a sin, not at all. But I think that the solution our world offers to tiredness and demotivation is the same as the solution human-based religious systems offer to our sin and wrath problems. That solution, work harder. Religion says you're struggling with the moral problem, you're struggling with sin in your life, work harder and then you'll be accepted by God. Our culture says you're struggling with tiredness and motivation, work harder, dig deep into your own resources, willpower and energy and you will improve. I think it's a natural human impulse to want to fix things ourselves, to do things ourselves, to search inside for strength and motivation and do and try and make up for our weaknesses and mistakes and our own strength to succeed and overcome, to do it my way. There's literally thousands of slogans online, like one I randomly discovered on Google, which says, no magic potions, no fairy dust, no one to do it for you, just me. I will push you, show you how to put one determined foot in front of the other. That's what I will do. I'm inside you. I'm called your inner strength. Dig down deep and find me. Now, this may motivate, but when you're feeling tired and spent, the hard work required to dig down deep can just make us feel overwhelmed. Now, I don't want to, for a second to extol laziness or diminish the desire to work hard, but it seems that when we're tired and unmotivated, it can feel overwhelming and difficult or impossible to know that the only way out of my challenges and difficulties is through me, my will, my hard work and energy. When feeling tired and flat, the greatest motivational speech imploring us to dig into ourselves and to our inner strength feels shallow and impossible. And this is how many perceive religion and how we overcome our sin and moral failings. We work harder and God will change us and accept us. And this was the journey of Martin Luther, whose story was at the heart of the beginning of the Reformation. Now, Martin Luther, who is not the same as the American civil rights activist, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who actually some people have confused. But anyway, Martin Luther lived some 500 years ago in a small town called Wittenberg in northern Germany. Now, Luther recognized his sinfulness and he sought desperately for a solution. Now, the solution the church offered was do what lies within you. Do your best. God only accepts righteous people. So be good. Do righteous acts. Do works. And this will make you acceptable to God. Sound familiar? Hence, Martin Luther threw himself into efforts to achieve salvation. He worked hard. He became a monk and went to six worship services each day, which began at 2 a.m. He prayed intensely, meditated. He tortured himself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and freezing. He says, I almost fasted myself to death. For again and again, I went for three days without taking a drop of water or a morsel of food. I was very serious about it. He kept asking, have I really done my best for God? Have I fully realized my God-given potential? Luther always felt a sense of failure and of having missed the mark. He was in a constant state of anxiety. The question that tormented Luther was, how do I know if I've done enough good works? 
And the answer medieval Catholicism taught him was a resounding try harder, leaving Luther in an uneasy state of anxiety. He wrote, I live without reproach as a monk, but my conscience was disturbed to its very depths. And all I knew about myself was that I was a sinner. I could not believe that anything I thought or did or prayed satisfied God. I did not love, nay, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinner. Luther dearly wanted to be righteous. Despite how hard he worked, he couldn't overcome his sin. He was a sinner who failed. Yet the message taught to, by Luther, sorry, the message taught to Luther by the religious systems of medieval Catholicism, which is the same as the message all around us today, work harder, work harder, work harder. But Luther discovered good news, news which was radically counter to his religious system and news which is radically counter to the expectations of humanity today. It's there in, in verses four and five. Look with me there. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. But because of his great love, what was dead has been made alive by the grace of God. It's by grace you've been saved. Salvation from God's righteous wrath. This passage says that salvation and a relationship with God come not from working harder, digging deep inside, doing more things, but instead by grace. And this is where the Reformation is so important because of the medieval Catholic Church had obscured the true meaning of grace. Now, to understand what was obscured, I have to unpack a little bit on how the Catholic Church understood grace and hence salvation. Now, the Catholic teaching on salvation was somewhat, is actually somewhat understandable. It teaches that God can only accept righteous people. Now, we don't like frauds. We like people to be genuine. So God can only accept people who are genuinely and really righteous. So given the sinfulness of humanity, how can God accept someone who is as righteous who is patently not? Someone who gratifies the cravings of the flesh? Well, the answer is the Catholic idea of justification, where people are made righteous not declared righteous in a legal sense, but made righteous in an actual moral sense. They claim that people are changed by, by the grace of God to change people from being evil, selfish, and greedy into good, loving, kind, and righteous people. They claim God's grace comes to us and we open ourselves to God's saving presence by opening the, the gate of faith in our mind, which gives God access to our heart, mind, and spirit. So grace to the Catholic Church becomes like a, a supernatural power, allowing us to become righteous with God's help and by God's power. Justification, in their mind, establishes cooperation between God's grace and our freedom. They say that while good works by themselves cannot merit justification, they do dispose us to receive God's grace. For example, they claim an unbaptized adult or a person in the state of mortal sin, through his kindness, generosity, and service to others, along with prayer to God, prepares himself to receive God's grace of conversion more easily. So I'm not quite sure. It's a subtle but a very powerful difference here because good works in some ways here are effectively are a way to effectively reward grace. In some sense, we contribute to save ourselves. I found a Catholic website which describes five ways to seek grace in your life. It says at the start, we should do all in our power to preserve God's grace in our souls, but also to grow daily in God's grace. For example, and I'll give a couple, I'm not going to give all five, but prayer. 
Every time we pray with humility of heart, purity of intention, and a desire to please God, we immediately grow in grace. Penance, every time we say no to our selfish desires and yes to a sacrifice that the Holy Spirit has inspired in our hearts, then once again, the grace of God rises in our hearts. Mary, if we want to be multi-billionaires in heaven, let us love Mary and the prayer that Mary loves so much. Hail Mary. Therefore, let us get into the habit of praying the daily rosary with the beautiful prayer, Hail Mary. If done, Our Lady, through her powerful intercession, will be storing up for you infinite treasures and an eternal home in heaven. Now, again, do you get what's going on here? In the Catholic view of grace, it's a bit like, I don't want to be crass, but it's a bit like supernatural monopoly money. It's something that I can store up, I can build and grow by performing religious and spiritual rituals and acts. Again, God's grace is less a gift and more a reward. Hence, ultimately, it's up to us to just work harder to obtain grace, to get ourselves ready to receive God. And to be honest, it just feels tiring. I need to keep working hard at building up my grace and keep watching to ensure I don't fall from a state of grace. There is no rest or assurance of his salvation because if God demands a perfect righteousness and I'm just a little bit unrighteous, God can't accept me. And Luther felt this acutely and it drove his anxiety because he was so desperate to be completely and entirely and truly righteous. Yet in the midst of Luther's despair, he discovered what the Catholic Church had obscured, like finding a a precious jewel in the mud. Luther discovered from the scriptures that the solution to sin wasn't to try harder, but to recognize that a new external righteousness from God justifies us through Jesus for all who believe. This is the grace of God, a true gift. The righteousness of God was no longer a demand to be met by our achievement and our hard work. The burden of salvation rests not on our deeds, but on God's action. Again, the true meaning of God's grace. It's a complete and finished gift to be accepted by faith. faith. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The grace of God is the favor, mercy, and gracious kindness of God towards us. It's not something that we build up or earn or strive for or gain with our own hard work. It's a gift, full, complete, and finished. Gifts are beautiful and refreshing, and they're free, without strings attached. They're given not as the result of our hard work or merited on the basis of our inner strength, They're given because of the favor, mercy, and gracious kindness of the giver. And here in Ephesians 2, we read about the most precious and most beautiful gift of all, forgiveness and eternal life in Christ. Ephesians 2, 4, 5, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. This gift is true and complete righteousness, not gradual righteousness or potential righteousness, but a declaration that we are now alive with Christ, as it says there in verse 4. God's gifts us, God gifts us righteousness in Christ. We are given Christ perfect righteousness freely. Hence, we are then seen as righteous by God, even when once dead in transgressions, and we still fail and sin. Simultaneously righteous and a sinner. This really is amazing grace life with Jesus, a relationship with him and peace, comfort and hope 
a wonderful gift, a gift which transcends any other striving or adversity or goal we may face. This was Luther's breakthrough and began a reformation of how we relate to God. He wrote triumphantly, Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through gates that had been flung open. An entirely new side of the scriptures opened itself to me and I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the loathing with which I had hated the term, the righteousness of God. Thus, that verse in Paul was for me truly the gate of paradise. Luther's chains fell off. He was free. What was previously curse and pain and toil and striving and hard work was now joy, peace, freedom and assurance. God's great gift to him was righteousness, freely given. And the key was one of the slogans of the Reformation, sola gratia, grace alone. It is God's grace alone which saves. For if we contribute to it in any way, then it goes back on us on, and our hard work. Grace alone. A slogan so contrary to the human systems of religion, self-improvement and motivation. Grace alone. Like a cool breeze on a hot day to the mantra of our world. Work harder, try harder, dig deep inside. Grace alone. The solution to guilt. Grace alone. Freedom, peace and rest. Not on my own strength or willpower. The answer is God's amazing grace alone, a gift which we receive by faith. This is what Luther discovered and we remember on Reformation Day. Now, if salvation, life with Christ is given to us as a gift, then there's nothing that I can do to get it. Well, won't it be abused? Won't it just mean that I could just live a thoroughly unrighteous life and do just what I want, knowing that Jesus still forgives me? Well, this overlooks the purpose of salvation. Look there in verse 10. We are a new creation, God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because believers were dead in the old way of life because of the way we lived. As we saw in verses one to three, we used to live following the, the course of the world and following the evil one. We were dead because of the things we did. Yet now we've been saved from that and we've been made alive and the consequences of that way of life. Hence, we can't live to those things anymore. We've been saved from the mark, from death. We can't go back to live to it anymore. We've been pulled out of the pigsty. We don't jump back into the mud anymore. Instead, we live a new and different way. And Paul is clear in verses 1 to 3 that the old way of life characterized by transgressions and sins was the way that they used to live. It's in the past. So he speaks here about a change of orientation, a repentance, a new status. And this new status is described in verses 6 and 7, which believers are seated in the heavenly realms now. Again, this was the problem with the religious system Luther encountered. His religious system said that you could lose your status. You could lose your state of grace, leaving the believer uncertain of their status with God. Am I in or am I out? Has the mistake been so serious to put my status with God under threat? But the scriptures say that believers, those in Christ, are now raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus now already. As we sit here now, as we're watching on Zoom, where we are, our status is with Christ, in Christ, and for Christ now. And as a result of this, this status change, this repentance, we live a new life, not to death and transgression, but to life and good works. 
When I was a teenager, I had the wrong, I had the order the wrong way around. I thought you needed to live a Christian way to do good works in order to be saved. I used to think that you needed to be good and then God will save you. But this is not what Ephesians 2 is saying. It's saying that the good works come as a result of your salvation, as a result of your status change. And it makes sense because we no longer walk according to the way of the world. After being saved, we walk a different way. We walk God's way. I met a guy a few years back who was trying to win me to his cult. Now, he was an impressive man. He was virtuous, thoughtful, and he knew lots of Bible verses. Yet he failed to understand biblical grace. He was trying to use good works to be saved by God. I asked him, if you died tonight, why should God let you into heaven? And he said, well, because I read my Bible. I pray. I love my family. I've led people to Jesus. I give my money generously and so on. Now, these are all great and virtuous things, but they're never going to get us into heaven. The only way that will get us into heaven is the grace of God expressed in the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, which we receive by faith and we possess now. So I showed this guy this, this passage, this passage from Ephesians 2 about works prepared beforehand for us to do. And he said, but that doesn't mean we're going to do them. But he missed the point. The passage is not speaking about potential good works that we might do or aspirational good works we should do. No, it's speaking about actual good works God prepared for us that we will do. Like a magnificent banquet prepared for us. God prepared a new way of life for us. We can't go back to the old way of eating cheese off old pizza boxes, serving the devil, the world, and evil. We have a banquet prepared. We have a new way of life. Because we've been saved, we are God's creation, and we live for him. So as we wrap up today, and whilst we still may feel tired, unmotivated, and the piles of work still need to get done, we can rest in the knowledge that we possess the most profound and precious gift of all forgiveness and new life in Christ. And we have this without any striving, working or toil. We can rest in Christ, enjoy him and all his benefits and rejoice in this good news because this is already ours and remains ours by faith because of his amazing grace, the generous gift of God. Now, as I've been reflecting and, and talking today, we do live in a graceless world where those around us feel the need to work harder to achieve justification, either with God or with their fellow citizens. Now, our Premier, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has appeared at over 100 press conferences in a row. Now, it's interesting to consider the reason why he's done that. Now, some think it's because he's taking responsibility. He's demonstrating strength, determination and commitment. And he probably is at one level. But age journalist Sumaya Ilambi wrote something perceptive recently. When she wrote in an Age article, she said this. She said, there's an element of that by standing, sorry, there's an element of that by standing up every day for the last 100 days, he's making atonement, making amends. Now, how does she think Andrews is making atonement? Hard work. Like a human-based religious system trying to earn favor from God. Andrews can't rest. He can't stop until the pandemic ends. He must be doing something to overcome the challenges. He needs to work harder. Now, I'm not saying, or it doesn't mean for a second that we abdicate our responsibilities or shy away from difficult situations, but it does impact our attitude, which will impact what we do and how we respond to adversity. Just consider slightly provocatively that Jesus himself slept in the middle of a storm. So when we're faced with tiredness, 
moral failure or weakness. We can rest in Christ and know that atonement has already been made for my weaknesses, mistakes, and failings. I can actually delegate a press conference or two, not feeling that my actions have to atone for my mistakes. We can rest and know that it's not ultimately up to us to solve these problems or make up for my mistakes. We can trust in our powerful and sovereign God and his spirit working in and through us to give us energy to overcome tiredness. Trust in him to give us motivation to succeed and to do great things. Trust in him and his spirit to change and to live for him and do the good works prepared in advance for us. We can be reminded today that it's not up to us and our hard work. It's God's amazing grace alone, which was rediscovered by Martin Luther 500 years ago. So maybe that's good news enough and worth having a party on Reformation Day. But it's also fine if we don't. There's no pressure because we are saved by grace alone. Amen.